1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Errol Morris, who has a book titled The Ashtray, or The Man Who Denied Reality. It's the third book. There are two other books, Believing is Seeing and A Wilderness of Error. There are several documentaries that Errol Morris has created, directed, The Fog of War, Thin Blue Line, Gates of Heaven was the first, most recent, The Known Unknown, and there's also a series from Netflix titled Wormwood, which came out, I think, last year.
0: I define it as a combination of diverse elements. Part of it is straight drama. Some of it is interviews, archival materials. It's kind of a new genre, or at least I like to think of it that way.
1: It struck me in reading The Ashtray that it almost felt, in many ways, as a storyboard for a film you could have done. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Not really. When I made my six-part series for Netflix, it was initially sold to them as The Everything Bagel. And I called it The Everything Bagel because it was going to have a little bit of everything. It was going to have straight drama, it was going to have interviews, it was going to have archival material, etc., etc., etc. I sometimes think of the ashtray as uh, the everything book, everything bagel this time in literary form, because a number of diverse elements. It's part memoir, part philosophy, part interviews with a number of Important figures, Noam Chomsky, Hillary Putnam, Saul Kripke, and so on and so forth.
1: In many ways, the Ashtray incident where Kuhn threw an ashtray at you in I think it was nineteen seventy, started a series of events that eventually led you to become a filmmaker.
0: More or less, yes. It was thrown out of Princeton University. You might imagine I was looking for an alternative career to academia, and I found it in the form of filmmaking.
1: The uh, ashtray itself, can you go into the specific incident, and then we'll go a little into Kuhn's philosophy and your objections to Kuhn's philosophy and how that led you into this other career?
0: The ashtray incident involved an ashtray that Kuhn threw at me at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton because of an argument that we were having about his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. The book is considered to be one of the seminal books of the 20th century. Kuhn, in that book, introduced a number of concepts which are virtually ubiquitous. Everybody has heard them. They may not know who originally came up with the ideas or where they appeared, but they've all heard of paradigms, paradigm shifts. It's become essentially part of the culture. I had problems with the book very, very early on. Yes, I was a student, but I felt that there was something wrong with the book. Maybe I felt there was something wrong with him. And our disagreements about the book and about the claims made in the book led to this ashtray incident, if that's what you want to call it.
1: The book itself, what I can gather from the ashtray and from my own reading, Kuhn's view is that on some level, all of reality, maybe I'm wrong, all of reality comes down to language, how people view the world, and objective reality, what we call objective reality.
0: Let me ask you a question. When you change languages, do you change the world?
1: absolutely not. What you do is you just think slightly differently about the world. That's all.
0: That's a view with which I would agree.
1: From the beginning, you were going, well, wait a second. There is an objective world. There is something out there that I can hold on to. There's a book here. I mean, how did that penetrate your consciousness?
0: What penetrated my consciousness, if that's how you want to describe it, is that I felt the book was Nonsense, and I was incredibly surprised and puzzled. Why does this book have an enormous following? What do people really see in it? Because Kuhn is telling you that, and I don't really want to oversimplify his book, but he's telling you that the world is an artifact of our conceptual system, and as such, always subordinate to our conceptual system. And then he had another quite far-reaching claim, these paradigms, these conceptual systems, which he called paradigms, are mutually, this is his terminology, incommensurable. So people in one paradigm can really never understand people in another. It's a way of dividing up the world like a piece of cheese. And for me, reality is reality. Reality stands beyond and above us, We live at a strange time, correct me if I'm wrong, where people talk about routinely fake news, alternative facts, and so on and so forth. And I've been asked, people ask me, it's quite a strange question, do you think that the whole notion of truth has been undermined? Is there no longer a strong notion of what is true and false? And the answer is, that hasn't changed. Truth is the same as it was 200, a 1,000 years ago. What has changed is that people are more willing to deny the possibility of truth. And that in itself, of course, is disturbing.
1: In reading the ashtray, I kept thinking back to the fact that we talk about, say, Trumpists living in some kind of alternative reality where they get their, quote, facts, which are not facts, from sources that we know are lies. So from their perspective, and only from their perspective, they might think they are living in a different world than we are. Do you think they are? Absolutely not. But they do. And then the next question is, you know, if they do, are they seeing themselves as kunists And when we look at them, are we seeing ourselves in some way wondering, questioning the nature of not reality, but communication?
0: What you're talking about is a kind of relativism. He has a truth uh, over there, and that person on the other side of the room has a different truth, and on and on and on and on. A truth for everyone, your truth, my truth, someone else's truth. Well, I don't have much truck with that idea. There's truth, period. What you're saying is either true or it's not. And just making a claim does not make it so.
1: Well, then the question comes back to the question that all of us are facing is, okay, there is truth. We're seeing it. They're not. How do we communicate with them? How do we make them open their eyes? Maybe you can't. At which point, Then what? There's war
0: or some kind of revolution. It's really hard to know where all of this ends at the moment. The country is so, I'm not saying anything that's even remotely arguable. The country is horribly polarized. The internet has made it possible for people to read the things they want to read, avoid the things they don't want to read create various bubbles around themselves where they are impervious to anything that interferes with how they see the world or their beliefs. I think this way is a very perilous way to go. I think the book is an important book for our time because it tells you very clearly about the dangers of postmodernism. What happens when we go down this particular road? And I can tell you what happens is not good.
1: Getting back to Rumsfeld and the known unknown, the Bush administration, in talking about the invasion of Iraq, kept talking about, we are not reality-based, we are creating our reality.
0: Well, that's Karl Rowe's line, yes.
1: How did someone like Rumsfeld deal with the nature of reality? I mean, what eventually happened is they invaded and the entire East fell apart. Tell me about it
0: they had the power to declare and wage war. That doesn't mean that they had any of their facts correct or that they knew what they were doing. Clearly they did not have their facts correct and clearly they did not know what they were doing. George Orwell wrote extensively about this phenomenon in 1984. What happens if you have a government that threatens you, tells you that 2 plus 2 equals 5, can they get you to agree? Can they force you to agree that 2 plus 2 equals 5 or maybe even convince you that 2 plus 2 equals 5? He wrote this whole novel about it. The frightening thing is governments have enormous power to influence, persuade, confuse, All that we really have, why is truth so important? Why should we care about truth? I would say it's what separates us from the animals. The fact that we pursue truth. We may not always have it in hand, but we realize that it's a value. It's something that we should pursue, that we should go after, that it's meaningful and important seeking and trying to establish truth. Is there a fact of the matter of whether or not Iraq had WMDs? There is. We now know they did not.
1: I mean, I might add that even if they did, it wasn't our business anyway. They weren't any kind of threat, but that's a different story, or maybe that's part of what truth is too.
0: The question of what to do is not a question of truth. It's how you act upon certain information. Did we have to go to a war in Iraq? No. But did we go to war in Iraq on the basis of a false belief
1: Yes. Uh, let's get into the, the, some of the ideas about truth that pop up in the ashtray, because I think there's a tendency for people to see philosophy as something out there in the head rather than something that eventually affects how people do things, which is what we're talking about here. Going back to his throwing that ashtray, at this poor undergraduate, when I was in grad school, I can't imagine talking back to one of my professors and saying, hey, Aaron Gervich, you're wrong. Maybe that was my problem, but you were able to do that.
0: Was it really ultimately to my benefit? I am not altogether sure. I've created in my life, I think, incredible hardship for myself Yes, I'm an argumentative son of a bitch. Yes, I quarrel with people. Yes, I have strong beliefs and opinions. So I guess I have to live with who I am. And he
1: threw it at you, and then he worked to get you thrown out of school.
0: Well, he didn't have to work all that hard. He was my major professor, and he had quite a good deal of control over my academic fate.
1: At that point, when you left... Was there an obsession about truth, or were you kind of going, screw it, I'm just going to do something else?
0: I believed what I believed, and over the years, I began to feel even more strongly. And I went on and did other things. I made movies. You know, I've, I've made over a dozen films now, directed over a thousand TV commercials, for better or for worse. But... Has truth played a role in everything that I've done and that search for truth? Absolutely. When you're a detective, and I was a private detective for a number of years when I was an out-of-work filmmaker, okay, you're hired when you're a private detective to find something out. Client wants to know something and it's your job to help them know it or to tell them that they're never going to know it or it doesn't matter. When you're on your own investigating, as I was in Texas in the underlying story of the Thinbu Blue Line, I spent three years trying to prove that this drifter, Randall Adams, had been falsely sentenced to death, convicted of capital murder, sentenced to death for a crime he did not commit. And I was able to get the conviction reversed and to get him out of prison. This was really based on a very simple question. Did he do it? Did he do it? Is he guilty of this crime? No funny business about this legal technicality or that legal technicality, this law or that law. Did he do it? Did he shoot the cop? This is a murder of a police officer on a lonely roadway in West Dallas. Did he pull the trigger and kill the cop? Did he do it? This is a real world question. This isn't a question about paradigms. It's not a question about belief systems. It's not a question of this world versus that world. This is the world. This is the world. We have a world here. Someone pulled a gun from underneath the seat of a car As the cop walked up to the window, he presented the gun and pumped five bullets into the guy and killed him. This happened. This really happened. And who
1: did it? What prompted you to look specifically at that case?
0: Accidental in many ways. I was interested in a completely different story. And I stumbled on the case by accident. But having stumbled on it and having come to believe there was something wrong. I wasn't even sure what was wrong, but I felt something was wrong. There was something off. Yes. often remember a line in film noir out of the past where Robert Mitchum says, I could see the frame, but I couldn't see the picture. And this is very much a story like that. The chief prosecution witness against this man was a 16-year-old kid. And the 16-year-old kid went on to commit a whole series of violent crimes, including the attempted murder of another police officer, I had all these questions. Who in hell is the kid? What did he see? What didn't he see? What's the story? Something nagged at me. Uh, It's like unraveling... A carpet, you have that string in your hand, and you keep pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling until you arrive at something.
1: In 2000, I went to a dinner put on by some friends, you know, it was New Year's Eve, and they were all prosecutors, district attorneys from Contra Costa County. And I asked them a hypothetical. I said, what if you know someone is absolutely innocent, but you knew you could put them away, would you? And to a person, they said yes.
0: Why would they say that? And what
1: did you say to them? I didn't know what to say. Actually, it was like I was just astonished. I think their response is, "Well, that's my job." I mean, I, you can't really respond to them.
0: Was well, the prosecutor in the thin blue line was fond of saying, and he was a legendary prosecutor. His whole long series of convictions, capital murder convictions. He said, uh, any prosecutor can convict a guilty man. It takes a genius prosecutor to convict an innocent man.
1: It's someone knowing fact, knowing truth, and... Denying it. Denying it, and not only denying it, but giving it the middle finger. Yes. Maybe we even have a president like that today.
0: Although, I would hasten to add, most indications... Uh, would have me believe that he has not a clue about what's going on at all, such that he would even have to deny it. He lives in a strange haze of his own devising.
1: Getting back to the ashtray or the man who denied reality, when you begin investigating his views and his views on truth, we go into some strange areas, one of which is the relationship between referencing something out there in the world, and if there's nothing in the world, what can we reference? And you give an example of a goldfish that's gold, and another fish that's a goldfish that's green. Now, six months later, the gold goldfish is now green, and the other one is now gold. And when you're pointing to a goldfish and saying, hey, that's Goldie, that's the goldfish that we were talking about, you're talking about a different goldfish if you're looking at just the color gold. So my question is...
0: I have no idea what your listeners are going to make of this. Look at it this way. What is the relationship between our language and the world? The world of objects, the world of things out there in the world. What is the relationship? How do words attach to things? The way it's usually expressed is reference. How to say names refer to those things that they name. If those things radically change, do we still refer to them? Goldie becomes greeny, greeny becomes Goldie. But isn't there a thing in itself? Isn't there a thing out there that language attaches to? And I believe that there is. The Kuhnian philosophy, such as it is, believes that it's all up for grabs. There is no reference. There is just belief. And I can tell you that when you deal with a world that is solely just belief, anything and everything goes.
1: If you're saying that, I mean, it's a nice day out, but if someone says, oh, I believe it's raining, it's still a nice day out, period.
0: Yep. In his view, it's couched in so many layers of nomenclature, and I would argue nonsense, that it's not so apparent. But yes, that's the nature of the claim. Just like Trump's attempt to convince us that his inaugural address was attended by more people than attended either of Obama's. You know, there's a fact of the matter. How many people were there or weren't there? And just yelling and carrying on and berating your press secretary and engaging in whatever kind of bullshit you can imagine
1: doesn't change it. In a sense, then... What is happening is that all of he, or rather the powers that be, whatever, are creating this level, these levels of garbage to obscure the fact that these are lies.
0: Yes. Although you could say, I'm not sure this is saying anything really nice about them, maybe it's even more horrible. They don't even know the difference anymore between lying and telling the truth. They think that if you just say something... Over and over and over and over again, it becomes true. There's a very famous line in Lewis Carroll's The Hunting of the Snark. It's the bellman's curse, I would call it. Say it three times and it's true.
1: When you worked on The Known Unknown or Wormwood, did these references keep coming back for you about truth, nature of truth?
0: Well, of course, I think about it, telling Stories about the real world. In the case of Rumsfeld, I'm telling a story about someone who took us to war on false pretenses. In Wormwood, I'm telling a story of a CIA bioweapons scientist who was murdered by the CIA. And the murder was covered up. Still, to all extents and purposes, is still being covered up.
1: When I was talking about the ashtray with a couple of people the other night, one of them brought up the idea of Rashomon, that you've got X number of different perceptions of an event that happened and what is the truth. Now, from the point of view, I guess, of Kuhn, there are as many truths as there are people and what actually happened doesn't matter. But... For you, Errol Morris is a documentarian and a you know detective looking for the truth, how do you break through those different perceptions to try to come up with the truth? How do you do it? Truth is a quest. it's a pursuit. You investigate.
0: How do we know about the world? How do we know about anything in the world? How do we know that gold has an atomic number 79? Or E equals MC squared. How do we know anything? We know it because of the fact that we've investigated the world. We've asked questions about the world and the things in it and come to certain rational conclusions about what is real and what is not, what is true and what is false.
1: So we can use things like Occam's razor to try to get a little bit closer to the truth, if we're listening to different people telling us stories.
0: I don't want to talk about Occam's razor. You can use Occam's razor to shave yourself. <laughs> Simplicity is not necessarily the guide to truth. The only thing that is a guide to truth is thorough investigation, thinking, radiocination, and a search that hopefully leads to something in the end.
1: A friend of mine is stuck in the Internet rabbit hole of conspiracy theory and my perspective is mazel tov could you want to talk further about that
0: no fuck them there's a million people with a million beliefs a whole crazy internet community of conspiracy nonsense i have a principle very simple principle it used to be that say 200 years ago let's pick a figure 200 years ago, 99.99% of human idiocy went unrecorded. We'll never know about it. Today, we have the internet.
1: I try to convince them, saying, look, you know, do some homework.
0: Well, reading is becoming more and more a rarefied enterprise. I don't know what you're supposed to do. I um, sometimes feel like crawling into a hole because the world just seems to me such a sad and abysmal place. The political situation seems horrific, but you can continue to think about stuff, continue to write stuff, continue to try to be halfway intelligent about what you write and what you think, and I'm not sure what more you can do.
1: When I was in grad school... As an undergraduate, I remember thinking, wow, philosophy is really cool. I can actually get to some ideas. And then the higher I got, the more I realized it was just people commenting about other people that I didn't care about. And somehow we'd lost the real world. Did you feel a little of that too? Well, yes, of course.
0: But philosophy is about stuff, or at least it should be about stuff. I have a terrible quote from Ambrose Beers about philosophy being an excursion from uh, nowhere to nothing. Do I really believe it? Maybe not. Uh, I do believe, maybe I even passionately believe, that thinking carefully about stuff will produce results. And that could be true in your writing. It could be true in your filmmaking. uh, It could be true in anything and everything that you do.
1: There's uh, a lot of discussion in the book about... Invention versus discovery.
0: There's an enormous difference because when I think of discovery, take it in a very s- s- simple way. Um, you know, it's the 16th century. You are sailing around the world in a galleon, termite-infested timbers. It's probably leaking badly, but you're on your way around the world, and you discover a new continent you discover that continent you don't invent it it's something out there in the world you land on it uh, you plant a flag you do whatever it is you're going to do but it's something that is there you could argue about whether the boundaries are here or the boundaries are there but something is there you've landed on it you've planted your goddamn flag it's a discovery An invention is very different. You've invented something that didn't exist in the world before. And I would say in physics and in mathematics, probably in a lot of other places as well, discovery dominates. When you're searching for the structure of DNA, you're not inventing the structure of it. You're trying to discover it, uncover it, uh, understand it. Uh, It could be the same for a helium atom one of a million other kinds of things.
1: It's funny, I interview a lot of fiction writers, and when they talk about creating their work, most of them talk about it as if they're discovering it rather than inventing it. They often talk about imagination as if they're discovering something, but that's not what you're talking about here. You're talking about something that exists in the physical world. Yes, I am. There's also one other element, the history of science. Kuhn talks about you can't talk about the history of science by looking at it from the present time. You could only look at it from the time when, say, an invention is happening or a discovery is happening.
0: Not sure how you go about doing that, but, yes, say that's his argument in principle. He must have a magic time machine that allows him to go back in time to the moment of a discovery and examine it at that time. This will be the fourth book that I've written. I see this as the first volume of an intellectual autobiography, a combination of memoir, because it is in part a memoir of my years at Princeton and my obsession with the Vietnam War. Um, And I'd like to write a series of these that intertwines philosophy, my life, uh, and many of the problems that I've encountered along the way. Uh, The next volume is going to be called uh, Murders I Have Known. I, for years, interviewed murderers at a time when I was actually living in Berkeley, a whole number of them, including Ed Kemper. Uh, murderers in Wisconsin, and it'll be a book, again, mixing philosophy and memoir and analysis.
1: Are you planning to do more documentaries at this point? Are you working on multiple projects at the same time?
0: Yes, I am, but I'm doing more fiction because I started with fiction and Wormwood, and I plan to continue, and I have a whole number of movies coming up.
1: When you're working on fiction, do you kind of throw caution to the wind in terms of trying to do reenactment and just say it's fiction? Or are you kind of being more speculative about it than, say, a general fiction writer might be?
0: For me, whether it's called drama or it's called fiction or it's called nonfiction or documentary, whatever these words mean, I can make... A drama that involves history and involves the real world and questions of truth and falsity come up, maybe not exactly the same as they would in a documentary, but they're still very much present.
1: There's a certain issue that comes up in turning history into drama, which is that there's a tendency to up the ante in drama. Real life isn't necessarily art.
0: When you're telling a story about a real series of events or a real person, many of these attempts just fictionalize everything. I hope that's not what I'm doing because I always like this connection with the world, this connection back to history, to reality, to truth. Look, Not everything you say is going to be true, and maybe most of it is going to be false, but it can still serve as an ideal, a light, if you like, guiding you in what you decide to do or don't do. I'd like to figure out a new way of telling historical stories in film, and I think I have found a way in Wormwood, and I'd like to continue it in my future projects.
1: Special thanks to Sherilyn Parsons and the folks at the Bay Area Book Fair for their assistance on this interview. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.